This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The information presented on Money Talks is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult a financial advisor or any other qualified professional for guidance about your personal finance questions. Welcome back to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here. Uh, our guest in studio today is Attorney Richard Courtney, a certified elder law attorney. Uh, May is National Elder Law Month and also National Older Americans Month. Today we'll talk about ABLE accounts, learn about those, get some suggestions on how to pay for long-term care, and also take your tax questions about gifts and estate matters pertaining to parents. Nancy Lotridge-Janderson, president of New Perspectives and co-author of the book Piggy Planet, Prudent Investors Get Going Young. We hope uh, we'll be here. Sometimes Nancy has some traffic issues getting to the studio, uh, so she'll be ready to take your personal finance questions uh, if and when she makes it into the studio. In the meantime, if you have a question for our guest, you can give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring The phone number is one 672 You can also send an email if you're not near a phone and need a question answered. It's money at mpbonline.org. So good morning, Rick. Thanks again for joining us. Glad to be here, Kevin. Uh, if you would, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and your area of expertise. Well, I have... I tell people it started personally with me. Uh, I have 39-year-old twin daughters. Uh, One of my daughters was through the gifted program in her education and uh, went to college at Mississippi College and uh, has a job and uh, now is married and has two little boys. So they're my 13 and 11-year-old grandsons. They call me Pop Pop. I tell people, you call me Pop Pop if you like. I'll answer to that. My other daughter has cerebral palsy. Melanie is a wheelchair user. She went through learning disabilities. Uh, schooling in her early years, mainstreamed into middle school and high school, got a diploma, went to community college and got her degree there, uh, has worked a couple of jobs, and now she works for me in our office uh, three days a week. Uh, she's had various public benefit programs, Medicaid, um, Medicare now, since she worked and paid into the Social Security system. She's been on SSI, which is a low-income and low-assets program of Social Security that'll help people buy food and shelter needs. Now, since she worked some after college and paid into the system, she's got Social Security disability. And along with that comes Medicare, even if you're under 65, once you've been on Social Security disability for 24 months. So she's got Medicare, just like my 88-year-old mom (laughs) does. And um, so we started learning personally about Medicaid and about other benefit programs and caregiving issues with her 30-plus years ago. And the, uh, uh, over 20 years ago, that translated into elder law because so many of the issues are similar. I tell folks that Me- Melanie currently has an attendant that comes five days a week to the home to help her with things she's got to have help with, showering and that sort of thing paid by Medicaid through a waiver program that pays for services at home for people who need those. And the the financial criteria to be eligible for that waiver program 
is the same as my mother would have to meet to be eligible for nursing home Medicaid. So the caregiving issues, my wife has been a caregiver for a child with a disability. She was caregiver for her dad who had Alzheimer's at home for five years before his death recently. So, So many of those issues are similar in the disability and the aging community. So that's how I got started, how I do elder law and special needs planning. Very good. As I said, uh, we've got some open phone lines. If you have a question for our guest this morning, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Hold off, if you will, on any kind of personal finance questions uh, until we see if Nancy's able to make it into the studio this morning. We've got a lot to talk about, but I think one thing that we've mentioned on uh, that you've been on uh, when you've been on a show with us before, uh, and this is kind of a little bit off topic, but uh, talk about the importance of of everybody, adults, having a will and maybe a medical directive? Sure. Planning makes, think, makes transitions in life so much easier and smoother for the person who's done the planning and for their family members. Um, even for younger families and couples, they should consider having wills because a will is instructions about who gets my stuff when I die. That's all a will is. It's those written instructions. But if I have children, I also am able in a will to designate who I would want the guardians of my children to be. If my spouse and I are killed in an accident, you know, am I going to, uh, are the grandparents going to fight over who's going to be guardians of our children? We don't want that. So we want to go ahead and nail that down. Um, Also, when there are children uh, who have Issues. I just call it issues. You know, they can have internal issues like uh, drug addiction or gambling addiction problems, just money management problems. Uh, Nancy can help cure those, but uh, I can't do that. Or they can have external issues like divorces or bankruptcies or creditors coming after them. If I just leave things to the to the law. The law says at my death, my assets will pass to my surviving spouse and children in equal shares. Well, there may be children or a disabled spouse who can't manage money. They don't need to inherit money directly. I need to make some other plan or provision in the will to do that. So I can do it in a will or a trust. And then there are two things I tell every client when we're talking about planning that everyone in this room and in this building and in my offices need to know are always in place. That is that someone has access and control. That's access to the information necessary to make sure my affairs get handled properly. Who can talk to my doctor about a decision, a medical decision? Who can talk to the hospital? Who can talk to my banker about what to do with my money? Uh, And someone with control over the resources necessary to make things happen. Who can actually write a check to pay my bills if I get in a situation where I can't. So access and control, thats we can accomplish those through trust in some cases, but also through powers of attorney. Everybody, my daughters in their 30s, my wife and I, my mom, who I say is 88, uh, still lives by herself on a farm. We all have our powers of attorney, our financial powers of attorney and our medical powers of attorney because we don't know when something could happen and I become unable to manage my affairs. I want to make sure that it's the person I want to do it and they have the rules I want in place for them to manage those things. You can't do that if you don't plan and have those documents. Very good. We'll be visiting with uh, Rick throughout the hour. So again, if you have any questions, uh, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two. 672 
888-900-7464. Nancy has made it into the studio, so we'll take personal finance questions as well. So good morning, Nancy. Hope you're doing well this morning. Good morning. There was a, a wreck on the interstate, so oh. <laughs> I was sitting mm. on the parking lot we call I-55 <laughs> for a while. The only thing I hate about that is, you, especially when you get in one, it's like you just curious as to what's going on. and then Yeah, it doesn't take much of anything. It can be just a little fender bender and everything gets stopped. Yeah, up. it's amazing. You know, when traffic's flowing along an interstate, it's just zipping along, but you're right. Any kind of little tick out of the ordinary there and you can sometimes get backed up for, for miles. So glad you were able to make it in. Uh, what about uh, some financial news in the news? Well, the biggest piece of news is we're all breathing a sigh of relief because it seems this trade war with China is for now we have a truce and it has been called off. And so investors are delighted to see that. Um, and we are always concerned about any kind of protectionist measures and tariffs, which are basically taxes and any kind of um, you know, fussing back and forth between two countries who are uh, global trading partners, uh, even though it may help one part or one sector of our economy, uh, generally it's going to hurt us all. All right. Um, so, uh, Rick, we are going to talk about uh, something called the ABLE plan. If you would uh, tell us what that is. Well, back at the end of the Obama administration, there was congressional legislation that passed uh, that is called the Stephen Beck Achieving a Better Life Experience Act, or the ABLE Act. And it it came out of an effort to see if people with disabilities who often have to have very low assets and income to qualify for SSI, for instance. You can't have more than $2,000 in countable money in your name to get SSI benefits from Social Security. And so severely disabled people may need that bit of money, plus Medicaid comes along with SSI, so there may be the only way they can get medical insurance. Well, that's $2,000. If, if someone leaves them in an uh, inheritance of $10,000 or if they are in a fender bender like out on the Interstate 55, right. they get, you know, get a $15,000 insurance check or something, that could throw them off those public benefits. Plus, uh, there are rules in those po- SSI and Medicaid programs about what control a person can have over their own resources. Generally, in the past, you couldn't have any control over it or they counted as yours. Well, the ABLE Act now has provided a savings account for people with disabilities who've been determined disabled either by the Social Security Administration through their process or you can self-certify that you have a disability that qualifies and provide medical documentation. They can have a savings account now that is based on the similar platform as our college savings plans. In fact, it's in the tax law. The ABLE Act is Section 529A of the the Internal Revenue Code. So you can't go to the bank and open one up. You have to do it through a state's plan. Mississippi is working their plan up. uh, So we don't have it yet. We don't have one yet in Mississippi. Um, well, could that, you go to another state? You can. Initially, it said you had to be a resident of the state where the plan was, which would mean no Mississippian could have one yet. But, but we don't but have that requirement with college 529 plans. That's right. And Congress came back, did a technical correction, and took that, that out. So uh, I have been sending people to other states' plans. Ohio has a good one. Uh, Alabama has just contracted with Nebraska to let Nebraska's plan do people for Alabama. Uh, So you can have 
an able account in another state. The criteria for it is you have to have a disability and that began before your age 26. So somebody who has a stroke at age 30 and becomes disabled can't do it right now. Initially, it, there wasn't an age limit on the ABLE Act account. Anyone could get one, but as Nancy's familiar with congressional scoring, that was going to cost $20 billion from the SSI yeah. and Medicaid programs over 10 years. They couldn't find other sources to pay for us to match that. So they put in this age 26 requirement, and that brought it down to $2 billion, and that was workable. So people who have a disability under 20 can have a savings account through an ABLE Act account in a state that has them, and most 30-something states now do, and every one of them will eventually. Uh, there can be th the limits on what it can have in it are um, $15,000 per year. You know, that annual gift tax exclusion that you can give anybody up to 15000 and not reported or pay any gift tax or anything well that's the amount so grandma can open an able act account for my uh, daughter and put 15,000 or less in it this year and my daughter can still be on SSI never lose that and my daughter the beneficiary of the account is the owner they have control. My granddaughter can spend the money for things that the act says, and it's a pretty broad range of things. So it's a savings account for people with disabilities who won't lose SSI and Medicaid by having up to 15000 a year go into this. So is it strictly um, a savings-like vehicle? Or are there other investment choices, as in the college 529 plans? There are other investment choices. In fact, let's see, Ohio has five different Vanguard platforms you right, can choose yeah. from, so far as aggressiveness or conservativeness. Uh, so, yes, there are investments. The individual who owns it can't uh, change the investments more than twice a year. That's the limitation. Okay. Uh, we need to take a quick break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Attorney Richard Courtney. We're talking about um, National Older Americans Month and National Elder Law Month. Uh, we've been talking about the ABLE plan. We'll talk about some other things as well. And we've got a caller on the line. Lots to do this hour. And we'll be back right after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Nancy Lodger-Janderson, president of New Perspectives. Our guest today is attorney Richard Courtney, a certified elder law attorney. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. Uh, Bill is in Terry and has been holding on the line. Bill, you need to turn your uh, radio down so you can ask your question, please. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, sir, what I was 
uh, curious about. My parents are in their early 70s, and they, they have a little bit of money in IRAs. Um, they are uh, getting near the age that they would be going into a retirement home. Uh, is there any way to – you said something about the $2,000 limit. Uh, they're going to be well over that. Is there any other way to uh, protect those investments from – uh, being burned up by uh, uh, retirement homes. All right, Bill, good question. We get that question a lot. And I'm getting a little echo from your radio. Could you turn that down a little? Thank you. Um, the Your parents may be going into long-term care. It uh, depends on their health. They might be saying, no, we don't plan to go anytime soon. The $2,000 I mentioned is a limit for the SSI program. They're probably not going to be in, interacting with that program at all. But a lot of people worry or wonder if my mom or dad or if my spouse needs nursing home care, how will I pay for it? And so let me kind of give you a quick summary. Number one is you private pay. As long as you have money, you can pay to be wherever you want to stay at the level of care that you need. Now, there are assisted living facilities, and, and most of those don't take Medicaid. They're private pay only. Or long-term care insurance is another way to pay. Most people don't have that. I think, Nancy, is like 6% of the population have bought right and by the time you're 70 it's probably too late yeah and it's It's too expensive it's going to get too expensive at that age to purchase so long-term care insurance medicare will pay up to most of a hundred days if you're coming out of a hospital stay somebody goes in the hospital with a broken hip uh, they come out to a nursing home medicare will pay the first 20 days in full part of the next 80 days and a lot of times medicare supplement insurance picks up the rest of that 80 days But after 100 days, there's no more Medicare for long-term care in a nursing home. Then there's Medicaid, okay? And that's the major payer of long-term care. Um, To qualify for that in Mississippi, uh, if they're married, the person claiming Medicaid in a nursing home has to have less than $4,000 countable money-type assets in their name. The home doesn't count. The automobiles don't count. The household furnishings don't count. Prepaid burial plans, prepaid funeral uh, burial spaces, those things don't count. In Mississippi, most IRA and 401k accounts don't count if you're taking out the right level of distributions each month. But the other things, checking accounts, savings accounts, uh, CDs, non-residence land, all that's countable, and you have to add it up. If it's more than 4000 this person won't qualify for Medicaid. The spouse at home can have up to $123,000 of countable money assets, so just Put all the countable ass stuff in mom's name if dad goes in the nursing home. And that's step one, get him below 4000 with his name on it, and then see how mom looks with the countable assets. If they're above 123000 there are planning steps that we can do that are legal, moral, and ethical within the Medicaid rules to sort of do some planning for mom to be able to get those assets within the limits. But it's really fact-specific on each case. So, Bill, there's no way to tell whether your parents should do something now or just wait until the time one of them needs long-term care in a nursing home. Some things you can't do in advance. You have to do at the time you're going to apply for Medicaid. 
All right, uh, Bill, thanks for that call. We've got another caller on the line. Let's uh, talk to Sam, who's called in from Jackson. Good morning, Sam. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, uh, good morning, Kevin. Uh, uh, you're on a good show. Uh, you know, I like listening to y'all. But I, I have a question to ask. Uh, I, have, uh, <clears throat> I have stage four uh, liver cancer, and I've been having for, you know, like a year. I mean, uh, you know, a whole year. And I get around real good. I mean, I probably cannot run you. But uh, <laughs> the thing is, uh, uh, I get like uh, three checks a month, you know, uh, 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 my military disability, retired military, and, and uh, Social Security and stuff. Now, if I, I don't want to go to the hospice. You know what I mean? If I go to hospice, uh, would they take all my checks? So I have a good question. No, hospice care generally is paid for by Medicare, and there's not an asset limit for that, just like there's not an asset limit for Social Security so disability. So that means it's going to be about his age. It's going to be about life expectancy for hospice care. Generally, the rule has been for hospice care. If you qualify, that means that a doctor will certify that you likely have a life expectancy of not more than six months months to a year. But you have now, to be a Medicare recipient, which means you yes. have to be 65 or older. Yes, you or do. Or you have to have been qualified as disabled. That's right. Yes. So Medicare pays for hospice care in home. I had a, a neighbor fellow one time, used to work for the state, for Governor Bill Allain, then the Highway Patrol, and his wife had uh, cancer. Uh, he got hospice care. He was paying a nurse, private nurse, coming over every day to help her uh, get around in the house. She had lung cancer. And so um, he, I said, well, why are you paying all this? Have you talked to the doctor, her doctor about hospital? Oh, I don't want to get into all that. That's a bunch of bureaucracy stuff. And so I said, well, talk to your niece who's a nurse at the clinic there. After a couple of weeks, I saw this different car coming every day, and I said, oh, who's the new car? Oh, that's Melanie. She's the new hospice nurse. I said, right. oh, so, yeah. Bubba, you got her. You got hospice for Miss Margaret. Oh, yeah, and they're good. They come every day. They help her with the same stuff, and Medicare's paying for it. I said, I told you so. Yeah. You know, and so it was a relief financially for them. They had good care for her. He actually got on hospice. He had congestive heart failure for a while. He got on hospice care. They helped him out until he got uh, some medication medication change and he got better and got back off of hospice care. Sam, are you already uh, on Medicare? Uh, no, I, uh, I don't have a VA disability. You have VA uh, disability. Yeah, and uh, I just wanted to say, you know, pe- people don't understand that like, when you get cancer and stuff, your appetite is gone. You can't Right, eat. yeah. And, uh, you know, the doctors, they are just shocked that uh, I have actually gained 12 pounds, you know. That's and, amazing. Uh, the way you have to do it, you got to get you a, a good blender, you know, like a big one of them big ninjas, and blend food that you can't eat, you know what I mean? I, I blend, I cook meat and, and beans and blend in the blender. I get my vegetables and stuff like that and protein powders and all that stuff and olive oil, you know, and, uh, 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 you know, different stuff stuff like that, you know, blend it up, and it's easy to drink it down, and that would help keep your weight up, because it's going to be a point in your life that you are not going to be able to eat any food. You're going to be wanting it, but you can't do it. But he needs to call into Mid-South Dining. <laughs> Deep South Dining, yeah. Yeah, that is important, uh, and, you know, we, we don't realize how important it is when we get sick uh, to be able to eat and maintain our weight. That's a yeah. big deal. Alright, uh, Sam, uh, thanks for your call. You know, I, I think that that's uh, probably maybe some something you get a lot of people worried about, you know, what's going to happen and, and if they have the disability 
something like he did that, you know, that suddenly their checks are going to disappear or be taken. Yeah, there's this misconception and uh, myths out there about, well, somebody's going to take your your income or take your assets or put a lien on your house when somebody goes to a nursing home on Medicaid. I tell the children, no, Medicaid by law can't put a lien on your mother's house while she's still living. They can't seize her property. They're just a creditor every time they pay so, the nursing but home. But it's after her death that they can come back. There is an estate recovery claim. Exactly. But we have an attorney general's opinion and a case that's in the last few years that says if there are surviving spouse or children, uh, then most likely they will get to retain that house free of Medicaid's claim. We have another caller on the line. This time we're going to say good morning to Linda in Tupelo. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good morning. I have a daughter who is in her early 50s. I'm wondering at what age should she look into a long-term care policy? Right now. Um, You really need to, if you're going to get it, and it's going to be reasonable as far as the cost, you need to start looking in your early 50s. If you get much beyond that, you're going to find the cost is too prohibitive. Okay. Now, the other thing that we are finding... um, because we have an aging population, because women tend to be the ones who end up in long-term care situations more than men, that uh, we're finding a lot of insurance companies will turn down women who apply. So don't expect that you will automatically qualify, even if you've started early, because um, they understand that there's a greater risk for them to cover women. Yeah, right here in the mid sixties, uh, mid fifties to mid sixties is the sweet spot among elder law practitioners. Have sort of determined that's when your premiums are still low enough that you can afford them, but you're old enough to be close enough to start needing the services that and you're, you're not thinking pay- about it. Yes. Yeah, that's right, yes. and you're not just paying for twenty or thirty years for nothing. So, uh, as as Nancy said, right now would be the best time. And I tell people, I don't sell it. Get a good, reputable. Ask around for. A good, reputable, long-term care insurance agent and go talk to them. And okay. get get more than one quote, at least yeah. two, possibly three. And the trick on this is to get each of those agents to quote based on the same dollar amounts, the same riders, so that you can compare based on the quality of the company and the price. All right. Thank you. All right. Yes, Thanks for your call. It's time for another break on Money Talks. Today we're visiting uh, with elder law attorney Richard Courtney. So if you have a question about elder care issues or a personal finance question, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. It's money at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives. And also today we're visiting with elder law attorney Richard Courtney. We've got some open phone lines for your questions this morning. If you have an elder law question or uh, a personal finance question, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 You can email the show. It's money at mpbonline.org. Before we head back to the phones, Rick, we were opened our discussion this morning about the ABLE plan. Wanted to make sure that we kind of covered all the bases there. Basically... Uh, it's a, a, a savings account uh, for disabled persons um, similar to the college savings plan. Um, and you said that uh, the person had to be disabled, I think, uh, by age 26. Uh, and it's a, it's an account that people can put money into. If you could maybe just give us a quick uh, reminder of some of the, the, the basic information. Yes, an ABLE account can be opened for any child or adult with a disability um, and up to $15,000 per year can be placed in it. There can only be one account. So if they're divorced parents and each one says, I want to open an account for my child, the first one who opens it up, that's the one that's going to count and and can be funded. The other one will be a countable asset that's going to go put the child over their asset limit. So you can only have one account. Um, the, there is a Medicaid payback at the end of that child's death. You know, at the, when the child dies, if there's money still in that account, there is a payback to the state Medicaid agency for any Medicaid services they've paid for that child. So if grandparents want to put money in an account for a child, grandchild or, or even a child, and they don't, and they want to not have it go to Medicaid, whatever's they need left to spend at, it, at right? death. Well, yeah, you need to spend it, or they can use a third-party special needs trust. We do special needs trust, and okay. that one would not have a payback to Medicaid. And the person setting that money up in a trust uh, like that could say, "Well, at the child's death, here's where the remainder will go. It'll go to a charity, to other children, that sort of thing." So there's this single account. As long as the account balance stays under a hundred thousand dollars. And at 15000 a year, we're not there yet. We got like eight years before anybody could max out their account. Um, but when it, if it stays below 100000 it's not going to be a countable asset for that person as, for SSI purposes. So they keep their SSI check and they keep their Medicaid. If it goes above 100000 but stays below the state's 529 college plan limit, which is 235000 in Mississippi, then... If it builds up to 200000 they would lose SSI, but they would not lose other Medicaid, like the waiver that's paying for my daughter's services. Mm-hmm. She could keep that waiver and still have an ABLE account with $230,000 in it, ultimately. So that's the limits at this point on an ABLE account. The one account for a person with a disability, um, up to 15000 per year can go in. Um, the person with the disability controls it. The thing I like about the Ohio account is it has a debit card attached to it. Oh, that's very convenient. There's one other one, I believe, that's more recent, Virginia or someone who has a debit card feature. Some plans, like Florida's, is just for in-state residents. So only Florida residents can use their plan. 
but there are a number of other uh, plans that anyone could could use and go into. And so what can it be spent on? Well, it's for like the 529 college plans, say for qualified education expenses, you know, transportation, books, tuition, fees, that sort of thing. There are called qualified disability expenses. They're health related. They're uh, transportation related. They're uh, food and shelter type related. So basically I tell people. You're not supposed to use it to go to Disney World. (laughs) But if you do, this is a tax act. Remember, it's in the Internal Revenue Code. So it's their responsibility to come back on that. And it says that if you spend some money from your ABLE account for something that's not a qualified disability expense, it is taxable. There's a 10% surcharge tax plus the taxation at your rate, your tax bracket, on the interest that that money that was not qualified disability expenditures make all that said if you spent money to t- spend a you know a thousand dollars to go to disney world the tax on that is going to be like a hundred dollars and a few dollars so for most people the taxation issues are not going to def- you know delay them or you know be a deterrent to them to spend the money the way they want to do it, but they're supposed to report and their tax issues. And as you mentioned, uh, Mississippi does not have a plan yet, but one is in the works. Right. We've got some callers to get to. We start again in Gulfport. Anne's on the line. Good morning, Anne. Go ahead, please. Hi. Yes, um, I have a question. I um, recently moved down here from Minnesota where I had a uh, revocable living trust. Mm-hmm. Established, and so now that I'm in Mississippi, um, what kind of steps do I have to take to make sure that this trust remains intact? Well, so I bought a new house, I sold the other one. Yes, and uh, I would suggest always do this when someone is in from another state. Have someone here review the trust to make sure, but probably you're not going to have to do anything to change it. Those trusts generally, we see, are going to uh, work from state to state. Uh, If you like Michigan's law better, uh, that may be in the trust that it's going to be governed by Michigan law, which could still take – or Minnesota, I'm sorry, uh, Minnesota law – all the MI states, Mississippi, Michigan, Minnesota, <laughs> just my problem. Um, but uh, if you prefer Mississippi's law, you could have the trust amended easily to say it's going to be governed by Mississippi law now. But uh, have an attorney that can understand those trust issues review it. Which brings us, Rick, to the point that um, uh, inheritance, all of these issues are really governed by each state's laws. Yes. And so when you cross over into another state, there could be other issues. Or if you have property in more than one state, Mm -hmm. then different states' laws could apply in each situation. That's right. Well, see, and I just, I sold a house in Minnesota, and that was in the trust, but now I bought a house in Mississippi. All right. And you just need to make sure that house gets into your trust. That that may just take a deed and no, no changes to your trust. But without looking at it, no way to tell. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right, Ann. We appreciate your call. But it's always uh, wise to have, when you make a move to another state, have a local attorney who is familiar with that state's laws. Just take a look at what you've done. Sure. And that shouldn't cost that much just to have them put their eyes on it. Right. uh, Notice if there's anything that could give you a problem, and then you know you're good to go. Yeah. All right. We press on, and next we've got uh, Steve, who's called in from Mobile today. Good morning, Steve. Go ahead. Good morning. Thank you. Um... 
my uh, my parents are in their late seventies, and uh, going through some old paperwork, I found that I'm reminded myself I'm actually a uh, one of the people on their will, and they've asked my sister, one of my sisters, to handle their financial concerns should they pass away or be hospitalized. They've asked me to handle their clinical concerns, and with that, um, they've both asked for basically to use you know colloquial med- uh, comp. Uh, terms, they've asked for no extreme measures. They don't want to be kept alive on machines, that type of thing. Um, my question is, are there any legal pitfalls, since it's expressed in their will, um, regarding anything with may come of family members? I'm not anticipating any problems, but are there any legal pitfalls that, um, that we should be aware of or I should be aware of when, if that type of uh, that situation comes up? You're talking about a, an extreme medical emergency where it's a question of whether life support should be engaged or not? Yes, exactly. Yeah, there could be pitfalls because while my mother may have a rock-solid, as I would call it, uh, medical power of attorney that lets me make the decision and it says no extreme measures or heroic life support, if she goes into a hospital under an emergency situation, If my sibling comes in, brother or sister comes in, and they are not in favor of letting mom go, if that was what I was going to do based on her wishes, if they create a problem for that hospital and threaten to sue them, then that medical institution is going to say, we're going to stabilize mom and let you all go to court and get a court order telling us what to do next because they don't want to get sued. They don't want the liability. That's right. Uh, So the fact that there are other people involved means there could be complications. Fair enough. So bottom line is make sure and talk to my sisters about it beforehand. <laughs> yeah, that everybody's on the same page with mom. We uh, Make sure your parents talk to all of you and yeah. express their wishes, and not just one time. They need to do it repeatedly so that when you get into a situation like that, then you hear mom's voice in your head saying, this is what I want, and it makes yeah. it a lot easier. Yeah. And honestly, I don't expect that that will be an issue in, in my family. We are fairly open about that type of discussion. And uh, But but I could see a situation where it could occur, and I'm one of those people that likes likes to ask questions for, for others as well as for myself. All right. Great call, Steve. Thanks very much. Uh, let's get one more call in before our next break, and it goes to Mary, who's called in from the road this morning. Go ahead, Mary. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Um, my mother is 93 and lives at home. She has some ladies that stay with her at night. But other than that, uh, she's pretty self-sufficient. She has, uh, my problem is we have a, a very large farm that my dad and mom had. And I'm wondering about if she has to go into a nursing care facility that they, the uh, government or the nursing care facility can take the farm. I, I heard you about the house that, you know, they could, that possibly wouldn't be the case. But with the farm, because it's about a thousand acre farm, I was wondering if that is going to also be. Is her home located on that property? Yes, it is. Well, Medicaid's definition of the residence that is not countable is the the home and all contiguous land that oh, it sits wow, on. Oh, wow, that helps, doesn't so it? So we've had homes sitting on 400 acres of land, and the, the entire place was not countable as an asset because it was the home place. Okay. So, so more than likely, 
then that wouldn't be. Uh, and Mississippi has not been one of these states that's been been uh, going after those assets after a, a staying in a nursing home. She has some savings that would maybe pay for a couple of years in a nursing home if she had to go. But my sister and I both, neither one of us could afford to keep her there with, uh, without selling the farm. So um, that was what my concern was. And Rick, I, I'm just thinking, you know, um, certainly, Mary, you have good uh, genes if your mom is in her 90s. Yes, but we know at this point that her time is short. And yes. so I'm wondering if you're looking at a thousand acre farm sitting there, are there things that the family should be doing now to prepare for when she's gone? Should should that, they go ahead and change ownership? That well, was one of my questions. I just did not know if that's what we needed to do. I didn't know if that was a uh, she would do anything that we ask her to do. You well, know, she's kind of leaning on whatever we want need to do. And I'm. I don't know what to do. Yes, and Mary, and it would be impossible for me to give clear instructions without going over a thorough review of her situation and your family's. But uh, generally speaking, uh, if she transfers ownership of that farm to individuals, you and your siblings, or to a trust of any kind, it's going to create a penalty for her to obtain Medicaid coverage if she applies within the next five years after that gift. There's a look-back period in Medicaid law of five years. They ask on the application, have you transferred any money or property to anyone in the last 60 months? Yes or no? If you check yes, because three years earlier she had deeded the farm to you, and she's three years later going in a nursing home to apply for Medicaid because she's got less than $4,000 left in money then they're going to say, well, whatever the value of the farm property that she transferred was divided by the monthly average cost of nursing home care. Right now, that's $6,619 a month. That's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. So if if this was $66,000 of property and she transferred it and she files for Medicaid in the next five years, there would be a 10-month waiting period before Medicaid would make any payments to the nursing home. So at this point, what you're saying is they're better off just leaving it in her name and uh, and then dealing with it once she has passed. Uh, that's usually the case at this point because of the a recent case and our attorney general's opinion that says Medic, if property is exempt as a homestead, and that's what I, one question I would have, is that homestead exempt property? Uh, if it's exempt under homestead exemption, it, it, rem- it, it remains exempt from Medicaid's claim in her probate estate. And so their claim would not attach to it, and it passes on through that estate to the children or grandchildren. So, well, once, once, once she used up her savings, could she then apply for Medicare? I mean, Medicaid? Well, yes, she can, and and that might be the only way to get liquid resource money into the nursing home is Medicaid if she doesn't have any more money. Uh, I have a question here, because if we're talking 1,000 acres, um, is that land being leased? Um, Right now, it's not. Okay. Uh, It was in, at one time, it was in uh, when my dad got to be in his 80s, he put it in a government program where it wasn't not supposed to be. That government program has run out. Let me mention um, something so about the what, last couple of years, yeah. mom hasn't 
because gotten I, any, really any income from it. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm thinking, Rick. It's not just the assets. It's that monthly income. And if, for a 1,000 acres, you know, a couple thousand a month would not be a surprise. Yeah, and Medicaid says we won't count property that is income producing. So if that property was valued at uh, $100,000 on the tax roll and it was producing okay. at least 6% rate of return, that's what Medicaid requires. So let's say it's getting at least 6000 a month, a year, at least 6000 okay. a year in interest or, or rents off of it, then that property, a $100,000 property, would not be counted as an asset of mom's for her $4,000 to get Medicaid. So if well, it is income producing, that can okay. make take a, an asset off of the countable list, uh, just like homestead property is off of the countable list. So there are okay. a number of different factors that could be at play. Y'all are so helpful. Well, and one other thing, too, so if, if she has a child who's on Social Security disability, she can give everything to that child and immediately go on Medicaid because there is no transfer penalty for transferring assets to a disabled child of any age. All right. Okay. Mary, thanks for your call. Let's uh, take one final break this hour. You're listening to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting this hour with certified elder law attorney Richard Courtney. Back to wrap up the show after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives and co-author of the book Piggy Planet, Prudent Investors, Get Going Young. Today we're visiting with elder law attorney, certified elder law attorney, Richard Courtney, and we've been talking about a number of issues uh, concerning elder law and uh, dealing with uh, long-term care and, and sort of thing for, for older uh, Mississippians. Um, so, Rick, we've mentioned a couple of times uh, long care in, long-term care insurance, and uh, both you and Nancy mentioned that uh, mid-50s is probably about the time that someone should probably consider uh, going into this, uh, what what does a typical policy cover? What what should someone look for in terms of coverage in a long-term care policy? Well, Nancy, you want to take that? Or? Well, I'll jump in here because um, it has expanded. And understand that uh, insurance is governed by the state. And so now what we're seeing is a lot of these policies are pretty standard because of getting approval through our state insurance commission. And um, you're going to have them covering not only uh, a nursing home situation, but there are typical provisions in there to cover somebody coming into the house. But you are 
also going to have a set of criteria in order to qualify for reimbursements for that. So there has to be some, you know, maybe uh, mom is having trouble uh, dressing herself, handling some of those issues, and that's when they will step in. Typically, there's going to be a lifetime limit on the benefits that they will pay out. So they'll start at any point as long as you qualify based on their criteria. But once you hit that maximum limit, let's say it's 150000 and uh, then they stop paying. And we also uh, see a lot of couples who have joint policies. So it covers both husband and wife, and that lifetime benefit applies to both so you can bounce back and forth, which is typical. And we always encourage our folks to look at an inflation rider Mm -hmm. because that will cover as expenses go up due to inflation, then you'll have higher protection versus what you sign up for on that day. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, and we have one final call, so let's uh, go to that and uh, invite Robert from Canton. Robert, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, how are you all doing today? Good. Fine. I, I was calling in regards, reference to the gentleman that was speaking about being at the mercy of his siblings, even though his mother had given wishes that he make the medical decisions. Can't she give him a medical power attorney now, and that will override any of his siblings' wishes Well, yes, uh, she should do that. Everybody should put in place the power of attorney, and and I will designate who I want to make my medical decisions and put any rules, and we go over the things, the options that are there for clients when we're doing these documents. Uh, But if she, even if she gives him a medical power of attorney or health care directive, we call it in Mississippi, that says she has no interest in having extraordinary life support happen if she's terminally ill or she's not going to get uh, conscious again, that may not stop other people, children, other family members from coming in and trying to override that. And when the hospital sees that there are other people going to create a conflict or threatening to sue the hospital if they let her go, then the hospital may want to just put the brakes on that and make everybody go to court to get a decision. Okay, thank you. All right, Robert, uh, thanks for the call. All right, so, Rick, we're out of time, but do you have uh, a website, contact information that you'd be willing to share? Yes, our office telephone number is 601-987-3000. Our website is elderlawms.com, www.elderlawms.com. That's going to wrap us up for today. Money Talks is a production of MPB Think Radio, funded in part by generous financial support from your listeners. Our show is produced by Liz Gill, and our call screener today was Java Chapman. So for Nancy Lottridge-Anderson and attorney Richard Courtney, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned up next at 10. It's In Legal Terms. We'll be back next Tuesday at 9 for another Money Talks, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.